All right, if I could have your attention, we'll uh, get this show on the road. As you know, we had a 10-week series, which we're hopefully wrapping up today. This is the 10th and final lesson in that series. So uh, if you come next week, there might be somebody else in here that you can join, but we won't be here uh, yet. We'll uh, be notifying you when the next series starts, probably in February. And so we are in 2 Corinthians, and we are very optimistic and ambitious today that we're going to go through three chapters, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 11, and 12. So if you have your Bible or your electronic device, turn to 2 Corinthians. That's right after 1 Corinthians. Second <laughs> Corinthians chapter 10 through 12. And it's an interesting series of contrasts. It seems like most of Second Corinthians is like that, isn't it? Uh, you have these paradoxes and these contrasts that Paul goes through. And the contrast today is between uh, our weakness and God's strength versus the uh, strength of these false teachers that have come into Corinth and claim to be great, and they uh, are very in, into self-promotion and talking about how smart they are and what eloquent speakers are. And so it's kind of this underdog David-Goliath situation here, very much like the, the Waterboy movie clip that we've got here for you today. Just a little trivia, the uh, defensive end for Atlanta broke his record for sacks yesterday. If you're watching the Cowboy game, he had 38 sacks, I believe. I, I wasn't counting. But. <laughs> All right, so 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, you know, when you when you think about this underdog, David and Goliath, think the race, you probably heard, the race doesn't always go to the strongest and the fastest, but that's the way to bet, right? That's the way the world looks at it, and, and rightfully so, because the strongest, the biggest, the fastest, they usually win the race. And all appearances are, especially in a worldly sense, a materialistic worldly sense, that that's what you do. That's who you expect to win. And uh, the Bible, though, has a little bit different spin on it. All through the Bible, time after time, the little weak guy wins in the Bible. Did you ever notice that? It goes through the whole Bible. Think of it. Moses versus Pharaoh. Moses was just a goat herder, 80-year-old goat herder against the mightiest king on the, on the planet. Gideon versus the Midianites. The Midianites had 120,000 warriors. Gideon had 300. David versus Goliath. Jacob versus Esau. Hezekiah, King Hezekiah against the king of the Assyrians, Sennacherib, had an army of 120,000 people surrounding Jerusalem. Elisha versus the entire Syrian army. Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. Him alone against 850 prophets of Baal. Joseph versus his brothers. Peter versus the Sanhedrin. Paul today, in today's lesson, against all the handsome, eloquent, self-proclaimed super apostles there in the church at Corinth. And so this, this theme runs throughout the Bible that the little guy who has God with him 
can whip the big guys. I mean, it comes down to that. Not that there's anything special about the little guy, that he does it in and of himself. It's always obvious that the glory goes to God. That's what it's all about. And all the heroes like David or whoever always get humbled first. And in this sense, Paul will be humbled by what he calls the thorn in the flesh. All the heroes get humbled first, and then, in their humility, God comes through for them and uses them uh, in his ministry or whatever his program is. The only problem, of course, the initial problem that they all have, that we all have, is that pride, our pride, gets in God's way. We see that in every one of these stories. So they have to be humbled first, and then God uses them. And you see God's power through their weakness. And so that's the bottom line. The strength of the kingdom of God that, that God is preparing and building is built on our weakness. That's what it's all about. God's power is revealed through our weakness as He works through us. The race doesn't always go to the strongest and fastest, but it does in the Bible. Does not in the Bible. Does in the Bible. Because God takes the humble and the meek, like the teenager David or Paul in today's lesson, and uses them for his purposes and reveals himself through them. So in Corinth, the city there in Greece that Paul is writing to, he's on the way to Corinth to pick up, we saw last week, to pick up the offering that they had promised him. And so the first nine chapters of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is basically dealing with relational issues. And uh, it's very he's very nice. He's very humble throughout his writings in the first nine chapters. And now, beginning in chapter 10, there's a pivot. Everything changes. Paul gets aggressive and sarcastic and pretty tough, frankly, because he changes subject to talk about, to address the false teachers that are in the midst of the church at Corinth. And, you know, it's, it's funny. We all worry about outside forces. You know, we, we're concerned about Christianity and about the churches because of the outside forces that are against us. But as you look to the Bible, you can see one of the main problems, main things we need to worry about is within and so in all the churches in the first century, and I think so today, there are, there are false teachers. They're there. It's just a matter of how much power that they can get. And so in Corinth, there was these false teachers who'd come in. Uh, these particular guys had seen what Paul had built, which these church, you know, Paul came in there when he came to Corinth originally, for his second missionary journey, uh, there was no church. There were no believers. And so he started sharing the gospel methodically. And over the course of about 18 months, he built up a series of home churches uh, to put together this overall large church, thousands of people probably in the city of Corinth. And then he went on about his missionary journeys. Right behind him, in comes these, uh, what he calls false prophets, false apostles, Guys who saw an opportunity. Here's all these people here. Corinth is a very uh, 
economically thriving city, so that church probably had, compared to other churches, a lot of money. These guys came in and said, we are professional speakers. We are eloquent. We look good. We can talk and preach much better than this Paul guy that, that, you, that you all talk about. We're the ones that should be running this church and that you should listen to. And so Paul kept getting these messages from his friends there in Corinth that these guys were loose within the church in Corinth and they're causing a lot of trouble. Fortunately, he tells us in the letter that he has gotten word that they haven't taken over, that the uh, leadership in the church has resisted them, uh, but there is still an element there that is tolerant of these false teachers. And so Paul is very aggressive in chapter 10 through 12 in attacking these false teachers, and he says many things about the people who are, who are following them, he calls them fools, and they are foolish. And uh, he is going to sarcastically draw contrast between himself and the marks of a true apostle and these false teachers that are fooling people there in the city of Corinth. Uh, and it's just loaded with material here. As we go through it, you'll, you'll see. Uh, number one, in verse one, Paul is going to identify himself with Jesus in being meek and humble and gentle, as opposed to these arrogant, prideful, uh, self-promotional false teachers that are building themselves up at, at Paul's expense. And so their, their values are inverted. Paul's are correct. He is like Jesus in his meekness and his humility and his gentleness of Christ there in verse 1. So I myself, Paul, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, I mean, you know that I'm this way because I've been there twice and you know me. But they say, the false teachers, you know, this guy acts pretty tough in his letters, you know, when he's admonishing you, but when he comes here, he's not so tough. And so that's what he's, that's what he's alluding to. So he says in verse 2, I ask then that when I am present, I may, not, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. In other words, it's a cryptic way of saying, I hope I won't have to be bold and aggressive when I'm there. I hope that y'all are in line and on the proper path. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, you know, we, we live in this world and in these fleshly bodies, but we do not war our battle against these false teachers, against the enemy, is not according to the flesh. It's not a flesh and blood. This is a spiritual warfare. Now he's going to pile up in verse 4 through 6 the military terms. We're talking about warfare here. This is a battle. What kind of war is this? It's not only a spiritual battle, but it's a battle for their minds, for their hearts and their minds. And what is at stake? Why is he so aggressive? Because what is at stake is the truth of the gospel, which means everything. So he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Great images, 
You know, they both built their forts and they have their weapons and they're clashing. We are, we, Paul and the true apostles are destroying all these silly speculations, all this false teaching. And every lofty thing, they come in here and say they, you know, they've got a doctorate in philosophy and they're brilliant and blah, blah, blah. We're destroying all that with the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive. So we are making sure everybody is knowing the truth and every false speculation that these people are trying to spread, we are correcting. Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So as soon as you make a decision is what he means there. As soon as you make a decision and you make the wrong one, we're ready to step in and admonish you and give the truth. So this is a war, he's saying, for their minds and their hearts. Now, he says in verse 7 and following, he's, you're looking superficially. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. All you see is how these guys look and how they have the radio voices. I imagine these guys, you know, have real expensive clothes, and they go to a hairdresser, and they've got big hair and quaffed up, you know, like some of the guys on TV, you know. And they have a radio voice, and uh, he's saying they look good. They, everything is outward with them. But if anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. So if anybody knows, believes that they are Christians, that they have Christ in them, you need to know that we, Paul, do as well. For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave. Now, where does Paul's authority come from? These guys' authority comes from themselves. Paul's authority, he says, is given by the Lord. The Lord gave us this authority to minister to you and tell you the truth. Why? To build you up and not for destroying you. I shall not be put to shame. They're trying to destroy you. I'm trying to build you up. Verse 9, For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. So there's the charge. Why would you listen to this funny-looking guy? You know, who is this guy? Have you heard him speak? He's got a squeaky voice. He's about 5'1" and bald and overweight. Now, I'm looking around the room because one time I taught this, and this little bitty fat guy came up to me afterwards and said, what's wrong with that? <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't, it doesn't apply to you. <laughs> but that's what they were saying about Paul. See? This guy's unimpressive looking. Uh, he can't speak like we can. We're eloquent. You know, we have a radio show. Uh, this guy, who's this guy? He's, he, he can't talk. He can't preach. His, preach, his speech is in contempt, contemptible. Verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. So what we write to you as the truth, we also obey it and keep it. That's who we really are, as opposed to these hypocrites that are telling you one thing and do the other. 
Verse 12, for we are not bold to class or to compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. Now, this section here from what, from 11 through 18, I think it's very important because what he's going to be talking about is something that's very, that it's the norm with the human race. When the human race judges themselves, you know how they do it? Comparing to other people. Exactly. It's a system I call relative righteousness. Compared to those people, we're awesome. So in that definition, we're awesome. I mean, that doesn't tell you anything. That just, even if it's true, it just means you're a little bit better than somebody else. And so that's, that's what they're doing. Paul's, we're much better than Paul, and so we're awesome. And they're comparing themselves to themselves and other people. Does that, is that what God does? Is that how God's going to judge you? Is it going to be on the curve? Is he going to take the biggest bum, you know, that he can find and judge you by him? No, not at all. You're going to be judged by the holiness, the godliness of God, the righteousness of God. That's the judgment. And so verse 11, he says, let such a person consider this. Verse 12, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. I'm not comparing myself with them. They're comparing themselves to me. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. They're, that's how they come up with their self-righteousness and their, all their uh, recommendations come from people. But his comes from the Lord. We will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. In other words, we're obeying God. They're trying to be better than other people. They're trying to be better than Paul or whoever. Paul's saying, I'm trying to obey and serve the Lord. For verse 14, we are not overextending ourselves as, we, as if we did not reach to you, we did, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Church in Corinth, people in Corinth, who was the first one to come to Corinth to preach the gospel? Paul says it was us. And we did that through much hard work and travail and travel. There was a struggle. So verse 15, not boasting beyond our measure, that is in other men's labors, like these guys, they're coming in here and trying to take over something that Paul built, the church there, and trying to run him down and take it over. So Paul says, we're not trying to come in and run somebody else down who'd already built this up like they are, but with the hope that is, as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere, enlarged even more by you. He's saying, we benefit by your spiritual growth, by what happens to you, by your fruit, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you. And so as soon as we got through here building y'all up, we went on and preached the gospel to other places that had never heard. And not to boast in what has been accomplished before, but he says, verse 17 and 18, 
But here's the deal. He who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. That's what this is about. They're boasting in themselves. Paul's boasting in what the Lord's doing. For not he who commends himself is approved by God, but whom the Lord commends. That should be obvious. But that's not the way this world works. It's based on what people think. And he's saying, that's not the way to judge spiritual things. Not the way to judge the church or the leadership in the church. Who should be commended? The one that the Lord commends. God is the judge. And so, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then, chapter 11, with that thought in mind about boasting, what Paul's going to do now, chapter 11, he's going to go, hey, these false apostles that claim to be super apostles, they boast. They talk about how great they are. Well, he says, normally I don't do that, and I think it's all foolishness. But Paul says, let me indulge in that foolishness a little. Since they've already gone there, and they have fooled a lot of you people, let me indulge myself in that. In other words, what he's talking about, he's going to now draw a contrast to what he has accomplished and what true apostles do, what he does in his ministry, versus them. And the net is what we just talked about earlier, which is God uses Paul's weakness. And when Paul is weak, God is strong, as opposed to these uh, fake apostles who claim to be strong by their own merits. So Paul is only strong when God is proclaimed and God is glorified, and these guys are glorifying themselves. So in chapter 11, he said, let me indulge, bear with me for a minute in this foolishness of boasting. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. What is a godly jealousy? When is it good to be jealous? When it is righteous in the sense that it's for their own good. God knows that what they need is Him, not these false teachers. So He has a righteous type jealousy for their benefit, for their good. Usually, we think of ill of the word jealousy because it's usually a selfish thing, right? But what Paul's talking about here, the godly jealousy that he has, that God has actually, is unselfish and seeks the benefit us. So I'm jealous with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband. I came in and introduced you to one husband, that is, Jesus Christ, that I might present you a pure virgin. <laughs> Great image, right? But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So these false teachers come in here and they're so sneaky. And what they say sounds good and they are good speakers. But what are they trying to do? They're trying to take you away from the truth of the gospel. You know, the simplicity of the gospel is that you're saved by grace. What's grace? The free gift of God. God's done the work. You're saved by the grace of God, and you make it yours by faith. That seems simple. But men and people, they don't like it simple like that. They want it complicated. Why? Because of pride. 
in their pride, they go, I have to earn this. I will keep a thousand laws and 20,000 commandments, and I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll accomplish all so that I might merit the salvation and that I might, you know, go on and on. It's all about them and, and human effort and what they've accomplished. This appeals to our pride. So what happens, it gets real complicated when you start coming up with all these rules and regulations and do's and don'ts that you have to keep, all this legalism, and you take away the simplicity of the gospel. So he's worried about that. And so you see in uh, verse 4, there's three delusions, you might say, delusions that they're preaching, the false teachers are preaching. One, another Jesus. Not the true Jesus, but a fake Jesus. Some other Jesus. Two, a different spirit, meaning not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of the adversary. And thirdly, it's a different gospel. It's a different gospel. It's works-oriented. It's not grace-oriented. And again, sarcastically, all this which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You tolerate it. You haven't accepted it, but you tolerate it in your midst. You bear it up under. You have patience with it, in other words. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. I am a full invested apostle that God has chosen and commissioned. And even if I am unskilled in speech, even if I can't talk as good as those people, even if I don't look as good, I have the true knowledge that I have given you. Again, the gospel, which you received, by which you were saved, through which your life was changed. I am skilled in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. We have taught you all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? So now he's going to go into another issue, which is when he came to Corinth, he didn't want anybody to think this was about money. So he had a job as a tent maker. And then he preached the gospel on the Sabbath in the synagogues. So he worked for a living. No one ever gave him any money. He was in Corinth for 18 months and never took a penny. And that's what he's reminding them of. These other guys, though, are coming in, and they're charging huge fees. Well, I can relate to that. You know, one of the things that's really messed up about our political system, and I think the reason it's getting more and more corrupt, is because these people are going around making speeches, and they're paying them six figures. You know, some of these people are, are getting 250000 half a million dollars for a speech. And everybody that is a president, I don't care who it is, everybody in the last 20 years that has been the president, as soon as they get out, they make a $10 million book deal. And so what's become of all this, they've made all this for sale. Because they all know if they win that, man, they're rich. It's a gold mine now. 
And Paul is using that. He's saying these people come in here and they judge each other by how much they charge for their speeches, their speaking engagements. And these guys are actually have the gall to criticize Paul for not charging. Who is that bum? I get $100,000 when I speak. That guy gets nothing. Why would you listen to him? Who's he? Right? And so Paul says, reminds him of that. When I came to you, I wasn't a burden. You never gave me anything. You didn't take care of me. In verse 9. Verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. But what I am doing, what does he mean, this boasting of mine? About his humility, about not taking money, about preaching the truth, about having the real knowledge, about not promoting himself, but promoting God. Verse 12, I will continue to do what I've been doing that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which we are boasting. For such men, these people that come in here and have attacked me and have tried to bring me down and take over and are promoting themselves, who are they, really? Verse 13, false apostles, deceitful workers, they're deceiving them, and they're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They look good. They look good. But that's only by appearance. No wonder, he says, verse 14, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants, those who, whether they know it or not, these guys are, these false teachers, are serving the adversary of God. They're servants of His in disguise. They claim to be righteous, but their end will be destruction. So now in verse 16 uh, and 17, again, He's going to say, okay, let me continue this foolishness. Continue this boasting. I hate it, but just, you know, i got to defend myself. So let me talk and reason like these guys. Just bear with me for a minute, Paul says. And so what he's going to do is, these people come in here and talk about, you know, uh, how great they are and what they've done and accomplished and everything. And he says, in the meantime, you know what the marks of a true apostle are? Just the opposite. Look what he says. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. So this is a crazy argument. And he knows it's nuts to talk this way like they do. But indulge him so he can explain the difference. I far more so as servant of Christ. In what way? In more labors, in more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Can you imagine that? 39 lashes? you got no flesh left on your back. Who knows how long it would take to heal. And then you go to the next town and they do the same thing. That sounds pretty severe. And Paul says, exactly. You know, when, when he was converted on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to him, uh, yeah, go up there and... Seek out Ananias, and he will tell you 
what you must suffer for my name's sake. And he told his disciples in the Last Supper, you're going to go out there and represent me, and in the world there will be trouble because the world has troubled me. They'll certainly trouble you as well to martyrdom. So Paul says, 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked in all these travels. Day to night I've spent in the frequent journeys, dangers from robbers, dangers from rivers, dangers, 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 all the time. I've been in labor and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, without food, cold and exposure. And apart from that, I worry about the church, all the people, all the time. So it's emotional as well. I have concern for all these people. So if I have to boast, verse 30, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. They're boasting about their strength. All these things I'm talking about seem to have something to do with me being weak. I'm going to boast about that. I'm weak. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. They know that this is His life of persecution and suffering. And then He talks about in Damascus, they were going to kill Him and they had to let Him out. What, how humiliating is that? They have to take you to the window, you know, the house built next to the wall, and let you down in a basket. <laughs> And you have to run off into the night. So you expect a great leader like Paul. What do you expect him to boast about? Well, I planted more churches. I led more people to Christ. I've written more books and raised more money. I've had more visions and healings and done more miracles than anyone else. That's what you expect because that's what you and I would do. What does Paul do? I got lashes and beaten with rods and imprisonments and stonings. It was great. <laughs> pretty, pretty good contrast, right, between himself and these other guys. So now in chapter 12, he says, let me go on on this foolish boasting deal. I know that these false apostles have come in and talked about the miracles that they do, and they're talking about the visions they see, and the stuff that they're preaching to you, they claim is from God. So you want to talk visions and miracles? Get a load of this. <laughs> so in chapter 12, he says, I know a man. He's talking in the third person. Third person, he's talking about himself, who I don't know if it was in the body or in spirit, but I was taken up to heaven, the third heaven. You know what the third heaven is? The word heaven there is basically the Greek word for the air. So the first heaven would be our atmosphere, the second would be outer space, and the third heaven is used here for the presence of God, wherever God is. That's how we normally think of heaven. So that's, that's what he means by the third heaven. He was taken up to see the glory of God and see and hear what goes on 
in God's heaven. And just so you'll know that he, what he's talking about in verse 4, he says, caught up into paradise, into paradise. That word paradise there only occurs three times. Uh, and once is the, to the thief on the cross. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Two is in the Revelation 2 when the, the new Jerusalem comes down in chapter 21 with God in the kingdom of God will be in the presence of God in eternity. It's called the paradise of God. And here, three times this word's used. He was caught up to God's presence, and he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. And he says, on behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. Question, why would he be talking, writing in the third person? The first hundred times I read this, I thought, I don't get it. Why did he do it that way? And I finally found a commentary that just, it was like the light bulb came on. And the guy made a lot of sense. Basically, he wants, what is, what's the context? He wants to emphasize what God is doing. That his work is God's work. That his power is God empowering him. That this is all about the Lord. So he wants you to know, and I know that this is a passive thing that happened. He didn't go because he's smart or better or worse. He went because God took the initiative and took him and did it. He was passive and deserves no glory in and of himself. This is all for God's glory. God did it probably because he was wanting him to be ready to go on these missionary journeys. So he, he speaks in the third person in that way. And he goes on to say, on behalf of that man who went to paradise himself, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast. So I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't accomplish it. I didn't deserve it. God did it. For I do wish to boast, for if I do wish to boast, verse 6, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. So he's saying, I will refrain from boasting about myself. I just want to boast about the Lord. And because of this experience, God did something. When Paul came back, God perceiving, knowing human nature, that anybody who's been to heaven knows that he's been someplace that no one else has been to. You might have a tendency to exalt yourself or hold yourself in higher regard to other people. So what did God do to keep that from happening? Because God has to humble him or he's no use to the Lord. See? And God is going to reveal God's power and God's glory through Paul. And he doesn't need Paul conceit or arrogance or pride being involved at all. So what did he do? Verse 7, and because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, so all the revelation, all the knowledge that I got from going to heaven, God, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me 
to keep me from exalting myself. This is some type of physical pain that God gave him, a chronic physical pain. If you've ever had migraine headaches or you get down in the back or maybe you got a bad hip or knee, I mean, there's a thousand different pain, physically painful ailments that most of us experienced. And you know when that hits you, there's no pride. There's no arrogance. It's, help me. And you're like quivering on the ground, you know, in pain. There's no pride there. And so God gave him this chronic physical pain to keep him from exalting himself so that God could use him fully in the task at hand. So like us, what did Paul do? I begged. That that word entreat is a fancy word for beg. I begged God three times that it might depart from me. It was so bad. It's so painful. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power, God's power, is perfected in your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. If God may use me in His service, I'm willing to put up to bear those weaknesses, all those beatings and all this physical pain. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, persecution, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power in my weakness. God's power displayed in our weakness is what God is doing, how He is using us. And it runs as a thread throughout the whole Bible. This theme, God's power displayed in our weakness, runs as a thread throughout the Bible. Paul had embraced that fact. Most of us have a a lot of trouble embracing that. We don't want that weakness. We don't want that thorn in the flesh. Paul had embraced it, that that thorn was essential to maintain his weakness and reveal God's power. Perhaps the most obvious story, I alluded to it earlier, is the story of Moses. You know, Moses in Exodus 3, he's been 40 years in the desert herding goats. He's 80 years old, completely humbled. God comes to him, talks to him through the burning bush and says, go tell Pharaoh to let Israel go, to let my people go. And Moses says, are you serious? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Why should he listen to me? Pharaoh's a mighty king with an all-powerful army. I'm an 80-year-old goat herder. (laughs) And besides, remember Moses said, I can't speak eloquently. Got a thick tongue. God gave him a very short, simple answer. Why should I do that? Why will they listen to me? God's answer was, because I will be with you. That's it. I will be with you. My power will be on display through your weakness, Moses. Great image of that. We covered it earlier in chapter 4. Remember the treasure in earthen vessels? God, it's my favorite image. An earthen vessel, just a common clay pot, Paul said, was likens to his own body. I'm just this earthen vessel. But there's a treasure in it, which is the power of God. It's the gospel of God. It's the ministry of God. It's the truth 
that God has given him. Treasure in earthen vessels. Moses' problem was very much like our problems, if you've noticed, or our adversaries or our antagonists. They seem large. They seem too big to overcome. What are we, how are we going to ever solve this problem? And perhaps they are too big to overcome. But in the Scriptures, God is telling us, I will be with you. And what you can't do, I can do. Romans 8. If God is with us, who can be against us? Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But there's always a problem. There's always something that gets in the way with us. Pride. Our pride gets in God's way. So the question then that Paul is asking, and he was the perfect example is, Will you humble yourself and let God take over your life and reveal Himself through you? God's power in your weakness. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank You so much for blessing us with these stories and explaining the way You work. Your ways are not our ways. Appearances are deceiving. Yet God... You take us, just common clay pots, earthen vessels, and use us and bless us and reveal yourself to the world through us. And we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yay! <laughs> thank you.